today's scripture passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 24. The Word of God reads, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there, let him remain with God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, once again, as we uh, bow in your presence, as we bow before your word, Lord, we pray that you would prepare our minds and our hearts to receive your word, Lord. We pray that, As Paul said to the church in Thessalonica, that we would receive your word, not as the word of man, but as it really is the word of God. We pray that you would help us to clear our minds of all of the distractions and the cares of this world, to focus upon you and upon your glory. We pray that you would enable us to rightly understand your word, to divide the word of God, rightly. And the Holy Spirit, we pray that you would apply it to our lives so that when we leave from this place, we would leave here not just with more theological information, but that we would leave here transformed a little more into the character of Christ. So, Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So one of the uh, most famous and classic hymns is uh, one that we're going to sing at the end of the service uh, this morning, and it's the, uh, the hymn, Just As I Am. Many of you probably are familiar with it. You've heard it. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, you likely have heard it. It was written by a woman named Charlotte Elliott, who lived 1789 to... Uh, 1871, and uh, one of the reasons you may have heard it, even those who did not grow up in the church, is that it was made famous, very likely made famous, uh, by the late Billy Graham. 
Billy Graham, who spent uh, decades uh, evangelizing the world, um, beginning with his uh, 19... Uh, 1944, I believe it is, 1944, Los Angeles Crusades that were planned for uh, two weeks but then stretched on for eight weeks because so many people were coming to that tent revival and desiring to place their faith in Christ and to follow this Christ that Billy Graham was presenting to the world. And it was his practice when he began those Uh, evangelism ministries to end with that song. And they would play it over and over and over again as many people would come forward. And he did that for many, many years, but toward the end of his decades-long ministry, they began to mix it up and would use different songs, a little more contemporary, particularly as he got into the 80s and the 1990s. But it is unfortunate that the song has come to be misunderstood Many wrongly believe that the song means that you don't have to change your life in order to follow Christ. You don't have to do anything different. Just just as you are, place faith in Christ, say this prayer, and you're good. God will accept you just as you are. You don't have to change a thing. And that's unfortunate because that is not what... The hymn is about. That's not why Charlotte Elliott wrote that song. It was written by Charlotte Elliott on the hills of two tragic events that occurred in her life. The first was at the age of 32 where she became disabled. No one knows for certain why, whether it was related to a disease like polio or an injury, but she became uh, disabled and as a result began to struggle with depression and feelings of uselessness. But she could never really do anything great for God because of her disability. And then at the age of 43, her father, whom she greatly adored and loved, suddenly died. And it was a tragic loss to her. And so one night, we're told, a year after her father's death, she was lying awake in bed at night and tossing and turning and just struggling with feelings of depression, feelings of just being useless to God and to the church. And so she woke up in the middle of the night and she decided to put pen to paper as a, as a form of self-therapy to sort of write out what she was struggling with in words. She ended up writing that song, Just As I Am. And the fifth stanza of that hymn really says it all. She says this, Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. She's not talking about the fighting and the conflict is not about her salvation. She was secure in her salvation. She knew that she had faith in Christ. The fighting and the wrangling that she struggled with is, God, what can I possibly do for you? How can my life make any difference for the glory of God and for the kingdom of God? And thus the song is not about 
God not caring how you live so long as you come. Rather, the song is about God being willing and able to use you in ministry and for his glory so long as you offer to him the whole of your life. In other words, it has been rightly said many times in the past that when it comes to being used of God for his glory, for the advancement of his kingdom, God is not... God is not as much concerned about your ability as he is with your availability. Because God can use anyone. In fact, as you read the Bible, you discover that those who have the least to offer are typically the ones that God desires to use the most. Because he receives the greater glory when he uses the insignificant, the outliers, and the outcasts. For his glory. This is what Paul is dealing with here in our text that we'll be looking at this morning. You see, there seems to be this idea within the church in Corinth that in order to be used by God, you've got to change your circumstances. You have to somehow change who you are. You have to change your situation if God is going to be able to adequately use you for his glory. And so Paul writes in verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Now, this is clearly the central point that Paul is making in this passage because he repeats it two more times. Again, in verse 20, he says, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. And then he'll say it again in verse 24. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So it's quite clear the point that Paul is getting across. But yet, what does he mean by this exactly? So he repeats his points three times, and then sandwiched in between are two examples that Paul offers in order to be clear about what he's saying. I love that about Paul. He makes a statement, and then he gives an example or an illustration just to make sure that we understand what he's talking about. Sandwiched between verses 17 and verse 19, Paul will use the example of circumcision. And then sandwiched between verses 20 and 24, Paul will use the example of slavery. And so again in verse 17, he says, Only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has him. Don't miss the choice of words that Paul is using in verse 17. Let each person lead the life that God has assigned, that God has given you. Whatever life you have, whatever situation you are in, 
wherever you are at this point in life, Paul wants the readers of this letter to understand God has placed you there. There are no such things as maverick molecules, as R.C. Sproul was so fond of saying. God is in sovereign control of everything that happens in this world and in your life. Nothing happens by accident. Nothing happens by chance. There is nothing that happens in the life of the believer that is not first filtered through the loving fingers of your heavenly Father. Let me share with you a few passages that affirm what I am talking about. Isaiah chapter 46, beginning in verse 8, Scripture says this, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and ancient times, things not yet done. Declaring the end of world history from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Do you hear what God is saying? God is never frustrated. God's plans are never thwarted. What God desires to do, God will do. And there is nothing and there is no one who can stop him. Daniel talks about that quite clearly in Daniel chapter 4. Beginning in verse 34 of Daniel 4, the word of God says this, At the end of my days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, listed my eyes to heaven, and I saw my reason return to me, and I blessed the, the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he, that is God, he does according to his will among the host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? In other words, when the Bible describes the sovereignty of God, when we talk about the sovereignty of God in this church, when I talk about the sovereignty of God in this church, it means that God does what he wills, when he wills, to whom he wills, and he answers to no one because he is God. He is under no obligation to explain himself to anyone. 
though he has offered extensive explanation to us, hasn't he? But nonetheless, God doesn't answer all of his questions. But he's the king. He's under no obligation to answer all of our questions. He does what he wants, to whom he wants, when he wants, and he answers to no one. And we see that time and time again throughout the Bible. In Job chapter 12, verse 23, there the Bible tells us that God causes nations to rise and destroys nations. He causes them to become great and shatters them. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1 says, The heart of the king is like a stream of water in the hands of the Lord, and he turns it whichever way he desires. You ever think about that? It's hard to imagine, but our president is doing exactly what God wants him to do. We may not understand why, and we don't know where this nation is going, but God does. He has a plan for this world. He has a plan for this nation. He has a plan for this church. And God is doing exactly what he desires to do with this world and with this nation. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul is giving his famous speech at the Areopagus, atop of Mars Hill, Paul says this, Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, listen, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they may seek God. It is God who determines your allotted time period in all of world history. And it is God who determines the boundaries of your life. I find that great, greatly comforting. To know that my life is not at the whim of chance or circumstance but that everything that God does in the believer's life, according to Romans 8.28, is for our good, for my good, and for his glory. Even though we may not always understand what God is doing. Certainly during the time that Paul spent with the church in Corinth, he would have explained this to them. And so he wants them to find great peace in knowing. He wants the church in Corinth to find great peace in knowing. We ought to find great peace in knowing that God has you exactly where he wants you to be. Find rest and peace in the sovereignty of God. Because if we don't find rest and peace in, and comfort in knowing and understanding the complete sovereignty of God, then all of our theology is meaningless. 
So then Paul reminds him in verse 17, this is my rule in all the churches. In other words, this is not unique to you, Corinthians. This is what I tell all of the churches of God, everyone that I disciple. God is sovereign, and he has you right where he wants you to be, and he can use you right where you are. Now, we're going to see in just a few moments that this is not an inflexible rule. Paul does not mean that you should never seek to change your situation. There are times when the Bible will require it, when being a Christian will simply require it, or when God might require it. We know that after Paul's conversion, he doesn't stay in Antioch, but he recognizes that God is calling him to minister to the Gentiles, to be a missionary to the Gentiles. The drug dealer who suddenly gets saved and makes a profession of faith certainly has to find another line of work. But in general, Paul's rule for all believers is not to try and change your circumstance, but rather learn to be content with where God has you. Unless and until... God makes it clear that he wants you to do something else or go somewhere else. And to be clear, Paul offers circumcision as an example. He says, was anyone at the time of his, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. If a Jewish male in the first century world came to be saved, they made a profession of faith in Christ and became a follower of Christ, uh, very often they would try to remove the marks of circumcision. And you might ask yourself, is that even possible? The answer is actually yes. Even in the first century world, there is evidence from a first century medical treatise called the De Medicina. And it describes a minor surgical procedure wherein the foreskin can be pulled forward and make it appear as though a person is not circumcised. And oftentimes, not just those who converted to Christianity, but Jews who lived in the Roman and the Greek world outside of Israel and had you engage in public arenas where they might be exposed, for example, the public bathhouses or the gymnasiums in the Greek world, often they would seek to remove the marks of circumcision because they understood that the Greeks and the Romans abhorred the practice and they despised Jews. And so even for those who didn't convert to Christianity, they, they wanted to blend in. They, they didn't want to look different. They didn't want to make their life more difficult than it should be. And so Paul says to them, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. 
Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. This often would happen when Messianic Jews would encourage the Gentile believers. Look, I know that you're a believer. You have faith in Christ, and that's great, but you still have to keep the law of circumcision. It's a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Of all of the laws, if you're going to keep one, you have got to keep the law of circumcision. Of course, Paul wrote an entire epistle, the book of Galatians to the church in Galatia, arguing against that very thing. He says to them there in Galatians chapter 5, verse 2, Look, I, Paul, say to you, if, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. That's a powerful statement. Paul is saying he's using the example of circumcision, but don't think he's not just talking about circumcision. He's talking about law-keeping. He's saying if you desire to add any works, any works to the law, any kind of work to faith alone in Christ alone, you have been severed from Christ. You've fallen from grace. Whether we are talking about baptism or church membership or whatever the case may be, Paul strongly argues in the book of Galatians that salvation must be by faith alone, in Christ alone, and nothing else. Because if you seek to add something to that, then you rob God of his due glory, and God will not share his glory with anyone. Salvation is by faith alone, or there is no salvation, according to Paul. So Paul encourages the church in Corinth. If you're circumcised, don't try to reverse that. And if you haven't been circumcised, don't certainly don't think that now you need to do that, whatever these Judaizers are telling you in my absence. And here's why, verse 19. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. In other words, external. External conformity to anything, to the law, to those around you, will not bring you closer to God. It will not make you more holy. What matters, Paul says, is keeping God's commands. And you might think, well, wait a minute. Isn't circumcision a commandment in the Old Testament? The law of circumcision? Is Paul contradicting himself? Paul is not contradicting himself. Paul understands that the mark of a true Believer is a desire to live in obedience to the word of God. We just need to understand that that doesn't add to our salvation. 
It doesn't make us more righteous to seek to keep the laws of God. But Paul understands that it's not circumcision that makes us more holy or even that makes us a part of the people of God. For example, Paul will say in Romans chapter 2, verses 25 and following, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, all of it. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. In other words, the only way that law-keeping is benefit, benefiting to you is if you keep all of the law. Because we just read this morning in the reading of the law from James chapter 2, right? That anyone who violates one aspect of the law is guilty of violating all of it. So Paul is saying, if you want to be justified before God by keeping the law, then you go right ahead, but you've got to keep it perfectly. And I'm going to guess that for everybody in this room, that ship has sailed. He goes on to say in Romans 2.26, So if a man who is uncircumcised, a Gentile, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Listen, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You see, ultimately what God wants is not external acts of obedience, not external conformity to the law. Ultimately, what God wants is a heart that desires God, a heart that loves God, a heart that is tender and sensitive to the things of God, what God desires. And that's what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 7, 19. Circumcision or uncircumcision counts for nothing, but rather what matters is living for the glory of God. That's what matters. In verse 20, he reiterates his main point. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Don't feel the necessity, Paul is saying to change yourself or your situation in an effort to be more pleasing to God or acceptable to God or to be used by God. He then offers a second example in verses 21 to 23. His first example has to do with ethnicity, while his second example has to do with social class, social status. Notice verse 21 and 22, were you a bondservant when called? Now, first of all, the, the ESV uses the word bondservant to translate the Greek word doulos, which means basic, basically a slave. That is the accepted meaning of the word, which is why the New American Standard, the New King James, and even the NIV use the word slave. 
That really is the more accurate translation. Why the ESV uses bondservant, I don't know for certain. I think they are trying to make the scriptures a little more palatable to the ears of modern Americans. Because when we hear the word slavery, when we read about slavery in the Bible, in a way that isn't outright condemned, we can struggle with it. Because we reflect upon the slavery that existed in the United States. And so he says, were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. See, that seems a little odd to Americans, doesn't it? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. Why doesn't Paul tell the slave to just try to escape? Why doesn't Paul just outright condemn slavery? Understand that slavery in the first century world was radically different from American slavery. That is not to say that slavery was ever good or acceptable in the mind of God, but it is radically different in the first century than it existed today. For example, in the first century world, the time of Paul, slaves often were educated. Many of them were doctors and even lawyers. Many of them were used to tutor the children of wealthy landowners. They would homeschool them. They would use slaves who were educated to homeschool their children. Many of them actually had rights, and they could marry, and they could own property. Also, under certain circumstances, many of them could earn their freedom. From the Old Testament, we understand that in Israel, all slaves, particularly Hebrew slaves, Yes, they were Hebrews who were slaves of other Hebrews, were to be set free every seven years. Let them go. And certainly every 50th year, which was a year of jubilation. So slavery was never a lifelong entanglement. Also, we see that obviously there are slaves attending church. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have written this. Paul assumes that there are going to be slaves sitting in the midst of this congregation, as this letter is being read. And he gives them instructions. He says, are you a slave? Were you a slave when God called you? Do not be concerned about it. Don't don't worry about your status. But if you can gain your freedom, such as earning it somehow, or having a relative purchase your freedom, which was often done in the first century world, then he says, avail yourself of the opportunity. In the end, Paul is addressing them because it may be that many of the slaves in the church in Corinth believe that their slavery would limit their usefulness to God. I want to serve God. I want to be used by God, but how can I do that as a slave? I don't have the freedom to just leave. Maybe you're in indentured servitude. You're trying to work off a debt to your master. You know it's going to take several years. I've got to pay off this debt but I can't be used of God in this situation. So Paul encourages them not to worry about it. 
But if they can gain their freedom, they should try to gain their freedom. So we see an exception to the rule, right? Paul just began by saying, whatever position you are in in life, stay in that, in that situation. But then he says regarding slave, but if you can gain your freedom, by all means, you ought to do so. We see another exception to the rule in Acts chapter 16, verse 3. There we're told that Paul takes Timothy, who is half Jewish, and has him circumcised. Why? Because he understands there may be a situation in which that will become apparent to those that they are ministering to, and if it is to Jews, they will not listen to Paul and Timothy. So it's for ministry reasons. And that makes sense. We do that even today. If you're going to be a minister to a foreign country where their culture is radically different, they dress different, they behave differently, it would be wise to adapt to their culture and to their dress in order to be able to effectively minister to them. But notice verse 22. Here's the reason Paul tells them, don't worry about your your slavery position. Unless you can gain your freedom, then by all means do so. For he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. In other words, as a believer, Paul says, you have more freedom than you can ever possibly imagine. You are more free than the freest unbeliever that is out there because you are truly free indeed. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. The freed man who is a believer is not free to do whatever he wants or to live however he wants. He is a slave of Christ. I talked about that just a few weeks ago, right? From verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Paul will say that in verse 23 again, you were bought with a price. Paul's point is that if you are a believer, listen, you are not free to do whatever you want. You are not free to go wherever you want. You are not free to be whatever you want because you don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. So Paul encourages these slaves by reminding them that among believers, we are all slaves in one way or another. And no one truly has the freedom to do whatever they want. So don't be envious of those who are not slaves. In the end, you were bought with a price. Do not become bond servants. There's the word again. Do not become slaves of men. In other words, don't allow, allow the ideas and the pressures of this world to cause you to think less of yourself. Don't cause, don't allow the ideas of this world and the pressures of this world, sometimes the ideas and the pressures that come from within the church, from fellow believers, to cause you to think less of yourself or to cause you to think more highly of yourself. 
And so Paul says in verse 24, and so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. In other words, unless there is a clear biblical reason to change your situation, Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, and I think to all of us, grow where you are planted. Grow where you are planted. Minister where God has you. Know that you are exactly where God wants you to be. You see, so often we get hung up on the idea that if I'm really going to be used of God or be useful to the church, I've, I've got to change something about myself. I've got to change my lifestyle. I've got to change my situation. I have to change something. If I'm going to truly find happiness in God and feel useful by God, that kind of thinking is what ruins so many relationships and so many different, on so many different levels. This is often the mistake that many people make who are involved in difficult marriages. Rather than go through the hard work of salvaging the marriage, you know what? Here's what I need to do. I need to change my situation. I need a different marriage partner. I need to marry someone else. It's clearly the first one was a mistake. I've learned a lot. I'll do better in the next one. But we know statistically that doesn't happen, does it? Oftentimes people will struggle with this in terms of vocation. They have a job where they struggle. They work for employers who are unbelievers, who are difficult people to to work with. And so they think, if I'm ever going to be used of God, I've got to change my situation. I need to quit this job and get a new job. Or I need to quit this job and become a missionary. I need to be a foreign missionary. But the problem is, if every Christian thought that way, then who would be here to minister to the people in this area? God doesn't call everybody to be a foreign missionary. Sometimes we do that when we are involved in difficult churches. You've probably known people like that. They go from church to church to church to church. Why? Because every time they find the perfect church, they realize after a few years, oh, there's actually sinners in this church. There's actually mean people in this church. And to their shock, the pastor is not perfect. And so they leave. And they find another church that is the perfect church until they've been there for a a few years and then they realize it's not a perfect church. Sometimes people do that when they're involved in difficult ministries. They serve in a particular ministry role for month after month, year after year. It starts to become tiring. It starts to become exhausting. It was exciting when I first started this ministry. It was so full of joy, but at this point, it's just a burden. I need to quit and do something else to find my joy and contentment and satisfaction in God. I've been pastoring this church and preaching from behind this pulpit for nearly 10 years. And what I have come to learn about church and ministry is that it is a lot like marriage in that it is not always fireworks and bells. Sometimes in a marriage, you just have to do what is right. 
Sometimes in a marriage, you just have to do what God requires you to do. Now, to be fair, a biblical, Christ-centered marriage, for the most part, should be exciting and joyful. But it's not always. Church and church ministry often is the same. But you grow where you're planted. You minister where God has you. So many great examples from church history that we could talk about. I think about Martin Luther, who is credited with launching the Protestant Reformation. You know, he never desired to lead the Catholic Church. He had no desire to start a new denomination called the Lutheran Church. He loved the Catholic Church. He wanted to remain a priest. He simply wanted to fix the church from within. They forced him out, and so he had no choice. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, early part of the 1930s, he saw the writing on the wall. He knew that this was not going to go well with this new leader called Adolf Hitler, and so he left Germany for a short while and lived in the United States for just a year or two. But he became convicted that his home was Germany. And if things were really going to get as bad as he thought they would be, he came to realize who was going to minister to the German people if we all leave. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer went back to Germany to minister to the people. And he got in just before they closed all of the borders and would not allow anyone to leave. And of course, you know the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Eventually, he was hung three weeks before Germany surrendered. But he ministered to a great many people in the underground church in Germany. The point is that God can use you just as you are. God can use you where you are if you will simply love God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your soul, and like Isaiah, make yourself available to God and say, here I am, send me. Remember Isaiah chapter 6 begins by Isaiah saying, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people. Isaiah recognized his sin, yet when God says, who will I send? Isaiah says, here am I, send me. I'll make myself available. God can use you where you are in the situation that you are in if you will simply love God with all of your heart, mind, and soul and make yourself available to him. Let's pray. <clears throat> Gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we thank you for these words of encouragement from Scripture that we do not have to change who we are or our circumstances in order to be used of you and to bring you glory. We pray, Lord God, that you would help each of us to be content with where we are, with where you have placed us, recognizing that you are sovereign and that our current situation is not an accident, but is where you have foreordained for us to be from eternity past. And so we pray that you would enable us to trust in your sovereignty, to find great peace in your sovereign plan for our lives. We pray this in Christ's name.